you know, if there's foods that are organic, there's obviously got to be foods that are not organic, you know, and even just understanding that concept, you start to think about what we're consuming in a bit of a different way. Uh, but, you know, to, to give you an insight, like a mature Hereford or Angus cow will be 650 to 700 kilos. So you're looking at a cow that's two thirds the size. So they're a lot smaller. And why is that important? Well, to me, they've got a lower impact on the environment. You know, a lot of people don't realize it wasn't very long ago, we didn't eat marbled beef and we were not accustomed to marbled beef when they started American feedlots because they needed to figure out what to do with all this corn that the government was subsidizing farmers to produce. And they started feeding it to cattle and creating marbled cattle because these cattle were getting obese. They had to uh, market and try and convince people what to do with all this marbled beef. And, you know, so we, we, we've sort of lost that food intelligence and now we're all accustomed to marbled beef, but it's not the norm and it's not what we're used to. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Jacob Wolke on the line down here in Australia. Both of us. So this is fun. Wish it was in person, but we're making do. How's it going, man? Doing well, thank you. Doing really well. It's hot. So we're slowly trying to remember what living in hot Australia feels like. Yeah, for me, I went from just getting colder and colder, so it's probably in the the tens, fifteens, twenty C when I left Wyoming and now it's getting up there in the yeah, I think this couple days here is mid thirties down here. It's pretty pretty toasty. So I guess this is end of spring, right? Yeah, and we've had spring? the last two years have been really uh wet and the weather's been pretty mild in terms of, you know, high temperatures. So we're everyone in town's complaining that we don't have like we're not heat fit having to relearn it all again. So mm. it gets pretty hot. You know, we sort of get, we tap out at uh, sort of like mid to high 40 degrees Celsius, um, you know, which is halfway to boiling basically. Wow. So it's pretty, can be unpleasant. So is this, this year is then, it's very dry, right? Because up here in Queensland, it's it's from who I've talked to. I talked to Bryant uh, briefly at, at Eastwell. We went out there and yeah, they were saying it's kind of like the driest time for decades for this time of year. Yeah, look, down here where we are, you know, we're probably some of the more resilient country uh, in Australia. You know, we have pretty, you know, where we are in a big valley, it channels a lot of weather in. So, you know, all my lease blocks are pretty well protected. We still get the heat, but our, our rainfall is pretty regular. So, you know, if we get caught in a drought unaware down here, it's really a joke on us because we see it just creep down the east coast all the way to uh, where we are. They're all sort of the canary in the coal mine for our weather systems that makes sense yeah it's a bit yeah you got a bit more protection from the mild climate aspect i guess so cool well i guess let's let's kick it off you know your backstory it sounds like you kind of have this unique entry to regenerative farming maybe a bit untraditional from the folks we've talked to but it's always a spectrum and i find that sometimes the people who are most open to it were the ones who didn't have to unlearn anything you know they're not fifth generation ranchers or, or farmers and i know you kind of were just an entrepreneur and 
dove right into this. So, so yeah, maybe you could shed some light there for our listeners on kind of how you got into regenerative farming or agriculture. Yeah, sure. It was really the, the um, colliding of two different things at the same time. You know, like I was married, like freshly married, just had our first son. So my wife and I were starting to get interested in organic foods, you know, wanting to do the right thing, uh, you know, and, and had this awareness that, you know, if there's foods that are organic, there's obviously got to be foods that are not organic, you know, and even just understanding that concept, you start to think about what we're consuming in a bit of a different way. And I started just gardening in the backyard, wanting to uh, create some better food. And I went down a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole and I got introduced to guys like Joel Salatin. And I thought that looked really fun. I'd like to raise some uh, meat and eggs for myself. So my, my parents had a little piece of land and I leased it off them and started moving the cattle around a bit different and started doing the chickens a little bit different. And, you know, it just sort of snowballed out of control. There was never this master plan to do this sort of farm business that we've got now. It really just started to feed ourselves. And about that same time when we were looking at better quality food for our family, I started going down a real welfare rabbit hole also and watched a few of those expose-style documentaries that are, you know, going inside of feedlots and factory farms and slaughterhouses and looking how, you know, things are really done at the scale that really feeds the world at the moment. And I just looked at it all and I thought, I don't really want to be a part of that. I don't like the way those uh, animals are have to, having to be fed, you know, medicated diets uh, just to prevent them from becoming ill because the environment they're in is so inherently toxic that it's just a matter of time. You know, I thought there's got to be a better way than that. So it was, it was really wanting to do better by the animals and also having a really great food source for ourselves. And we just started with a, a couple of cattle and a few chickens and started pushing them around the paddock, trying to be Joel Salatin and copy all of his systems. And yeah, that was 2019. Wow. That's, that's kind of cool that you started. You just started small and kind of realized that this was an opportunity at hand because I feel like that's the best way to learn. And I know Joel Salatin always preaches that biting off more you can chew at first is probably the you know the biggest mistake you can make so it seems nice that you kind of had that playground but still the fact that it was unintended at what point did you realize hey this is like a really viable business model because traditionally you know ranchers and farmers they're getting they're making no money and they're getting aged out the next generation doesn't want to inherit their farm or their ranch and yeah, it's because there's not a lot of money in it. But, you know, if you change a system and the business model, you can obviously do quite well, as you've realized. What was that moment like for you? Look, agriculture is just like any other uh, industry where, you know, you could, you could compare it to supermarkets, you could compare it to bricks and mortar, gift stores, whatever. Some people are really good at running their business and making money and some others are not. Uh, just because you're a farmer doesn't mean that you have this benevolent right to make money um you know some farmers are just bad business people so there's there's a lot of hugely successful enormous very wealthy farmers out there um you know we we processed our first body of beef for ourselves and it made sense to put two on the truck instead of one and uh, cut a bit of extra beef and try to sell it to people it's harder than i thought i thought i'd go to all my family and friends and go oh look here's this grass-fed animal that wasn't drenched and we never sprayed the pastures, you know, would you like to buy five or ten kilos of beef? No one did. No one wanted it. <laughs> I had to really 
uh, beg people and leverage those relationships and guilt trip them into buying our beef. And, you know, I, I fought pretty hard. Uh, but then we got a lot of really great feedback. And after they bought that first piece, they wanted some more. And I thought, geez, maybe if instead of just doing one a year for me, I had 20 head in the paddock at that time. I thought maybe I can send two off every month and just see what happens. And very quickly, it became obvious to me that there was an enormous processing bottleneck. So we were in Australia. You have to send your animals to a uh, if you want to sell it for retail, you've got to send it to a slaughterhouse and then it gets consigned back to a local boning room, like a butchery, and then those butchers will cut and pack it for you. And there was just an enormous labour bottleneck there. The butchers that I was using didn't want to – they couldn't handle any real meaningful volume. They wanted to do a body of beef a month for me. And I thought, well, no one's ever going to build a business, a meaningful business, around selling 12 cows a year. So the building I'm sitting in right now came up for sale end of 2020. It's a butchery that's been in town here for about 70 years and it was closed down and it, all the equipment had been sold. It was all empty. And my wife and I thought, well, let's give it a, let's give it a red hot crack. Let's buy the butchery and hire some butchers of our own and not be confined by that one body a month, you know, ceiling that had been put on us when we were outsourcing that part of our operation. And I guess you could say that that's when we really decided to have a go and see if we could we could make it work. So we've been here for three years now. You know, I think we actually bought the, yes, it's almost smack on three years since my um, first butcher started and it's been a wild ride. It's, you know, we've thrown a lot of mud at the wall trying to see what sticks and learned a lot of lessons, a lot of enterprises, a lot of spinning plates going on and uh, I love it. Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to approach the issue because identifying the problem first and then actually just going directly to solve the problem for yourself because that's the same um, you know, issue in the U.S. as well. The USDA is is such a pain in the ass, and the processors, um, yes, yeah, huge bottleneck for everyone. And I know during COVID, it was even more of a problem. And we're still, you know, at the Bison Ranch I work with, we've now, you know, went from a processor to another processor. They both got bought out and had new ownership, and then we went back to the original one. Now, so it's just always this kind of like back and forth. So. I think if you do really want to be serious about scaling a, a meat business, you pretty much have to just take that jump of faith and, and just do it yourself like, like you have. That's, it's not cheap, though, of course, but if you find something that works, then you just have that control and you have that ability to, to not have to worry about outsourcing the quality to other people. So, and then you made this butcher to also kind of cut costs. You made it more of like a community-based, like self-service approach, right? Because that was the smashing thing well, that I saw on, on social media. When we purchased the butchery, we only wanted to operate it as a boning room to process our animals because at that stage, we had a couple accounts that I was, you know, we had a couple organic supermarkets, a couple restaurants, and then the rest was just sold, you know, off Facebook. People would just inbox me. Hey, Jake, what have you got? You know, give me 10 kilos of beef or whatever it is. And everything we we're producing was already spoken for. So it didn't make any sense to open a storefront here. And even if I culled all of our other sales outlets and forced everything to go through the shop front here, it wasn't enough business to justify an extra wage. You know, I, think, I think that year 2020, we were set to do 400 grand revenue roughly. And, you know, you put someone out the front here on minimum wage, $60,000, you know, there's all your profit. 
out of out of four hundred thousand dollar turnover business. You know, if you were netting sixty, you'd probably be happy with that double digit double digits net profit, and it would have all just been wasted. So there was just no point. Uh, but I kept getting asked. Everyone kept saying, "When's the shop going to open? When's the shop going to open?" And I thought to myself, "Well, the only way it's going to work is if, is if I can mitigate that wage liability. You know, I'd rather spend wages on uh, labour on the farm, you know, scaling or labour in the butchery." Uh, doing more processing. So I just came up with this concept that it's staffless. It's like a 24-hour gym. You become a member by doing a farm tour. You use a pin on the door. You let yourself in 24-7. Everything's in uh, freezers, cryback packs, portioned, labelled, and then you use an app on your phone to scan the labels, add them to your shopping cart, and then you pay with your uh, debit card. There's a little FPOS machine in here, and uh, there's a few locals that use Bitcoin and they've, you know, they've just got one of my wallets saved in their phone and I just, you know, trust them to uh, go for that. So we've got some security cameras in here. You know, it is monitored, but we've been doing this for you know, almost three years now and we've had absolutely zero issues. Yeah, that's so smart. And I have, now that you say it, I actually have been to a gym like that before. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty nice, right? Because the wages are such a large cost. And now I'm thinking we have this local farm store in Wyoming and they send out an email to all the producers like, hey, you know, how can we cut costs? How can we make more money? And obviously the, the biggest cost for them is, is the wages. So I don't know if it's feasible to do the exact same thing, but I'm sure they could model it to some degree um, to, to have that. And the farm tour is a genius idea because that just goes along with just being connected to where your food comes from. So yeah, I love it. I think that's so smart. But I kind of want to get into how Australia maybe is a bit different from the US in general in terms of beef production. So you mentioned earlier that right when you convinced people to take your beef, they were all about it once they tried it. Something I've realized, especially in rural U.S., Wyoming, and just everywhere, people are actually really, really accustomed to that grain-fed beef taste. Um, is that not as prevalent here in uh, Australia, or is that also an issue? Like, is almost the vast majority of everything just being grain-finished for, for quite some time and yeah, people look, I can't, being I can't used see. to that you know, nice grain-fat flavor? I can't speak for all of Australia, uh, but in my area, it's never really been something that I've been sort of aware of. You know, you go to a restaurant and it'll say, you know, here's your three steaks and, and two are grain fed and one's pasture fed. You know, you see, you see that a lot. But, you know, the part of the world that I live in, we've got a lot of country that's very good for finishing ruminants on grass. You know, we can turn out, um, you know, every, everything in this area, no problem. So I think if you go further north, where their seasons are more volatile, um, you know, they run a lot more feedlots to, to get that consistency out of their product. And maybe up in those regions, they're more accustomed to the taste out of uh, feedlotted cattle. But I think our feedlotted cattle here, like I'm not an expert on, on feedlotting, but I, I think that they run a little bit different to yours. And I, from my understanding in America, there's a big, uh, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of um, effort put around, you know, corn fed and a lot of corn in the diets. But I, I think our diets here in the grain, in the in the feedlots are a bit more varied. Uh, so maybe it doesn't have such a token trademark taste, you know. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. But there's definitely a huge acceptance and a huge movement of people wanting grass-fed and finished beef here. It's not – I you don't have to twist people's arm. I could triple my beef production tomorrow and sell out regularly. But, you know, people want it. Wow. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I mean, that's good because, I, again, I think it's like this unlearning or kind of these hurdles that a lot of areas, a lot of people in general have to jump over. 
And yeah, that again, that's kind of something that you had the luxury of just getting into it, um, kind of how you did. So how are you approaching your management style differently now compared to when you started three years ago and or four years ago in 2019? Well, I guess when I started, I was really just you obviously grown the herd, I'd, I'd imagine. Well, when I started, I guess one big difference is I was actually just stocking. So I'd, I'd go and I'd buy wieners, you know, uh, young steers and heifers anywhere from sort of six to 12 months old, whatever was a good buy. And then I'd put them on my pasture again, anywhere from sort of four to 12 months to get them up to weight and finish them off. And then I processed them. And the reason I did that was when I ran the numbers four years ago, you could go and buy a nice yearling wiener for $800, $700, and you could turn it off in six months and turn it into four or five grand's worth of beef, like on a balance sheet that just did tremendously well. And then over uh, 2021 and 2022, throughout all the lockdowns and and the boom, we had a real big price boom in our industry because a drought broke and everyone was buying livestock to build numbers. And those same $800 animals were now two and a half thousand bucks. And I couldn't afford to buy them for two and a half grand and feed them for six months and then spend a thousand dollars processing them to get four or five grand back on them. Like the whole thing didn't work. So I actually shifted my whole business to no longer uh, just solely buying animals, trading animals, but I actually shifted into breeding. And it was just that time around that whole time when I was looking for what animals I wanted to breed, I got introduced to Nguni cattle, which you mentioned Brian Usher from Eastwell Farm. He was sort of indirectly the guy that introduced it to me, Dr. Max Golhane was a customer of Brian's up there and Brian was telling Max about the Nguni and then Max let me know about them and I bought my first bull that night and, uh, you know, I've got five or six. How many have I got? We've got six Nguni bulls now and, you know, we're, we're, we're breeding very aggressively towards Nguni bloodlines because the animals are just so resilient, you know. So I guess one management technique is we're no longer just trading. We're really trying to hone down on uh, breeding animals where our, our sole ambition is to breed the most vigorous healthy representation of what a bovine is you know i'm not i'm not and this is really heretical in our industry like when i say this other beef producers just sort of roll their eyes at me but i'm not putting any effort into marbling i'm not putting any effort into beef tenderness i'm not putting any effort into flavor or taste all my effort is going into fertile vigorous healthy long-living animals that are just a real abundant Uh, representation of what a cow is because I believe that if we can start with that animal as our building block and manage steward our environment really well you know chemical free mimicking nature I believe that our default byproduct I believe quality meat quality beef is just going to be a byproduct of those earlier uh, you know decisions so so I I can't trade anymore I'm I'm, I'm all in on this and going anything and we're doing the same with our sheep and uh, very similar things with our pigs as well. So, you know, we've scaled a lot of a lot of things. We're by no means a large farm, although we do want to become a large farm. We don't have any, you know, this space is sort of really crowded with commie types who want to descale and depopulate and everything has to be micro and niche. And that's fine. I've got nothing against people who want to run a micro farm, but I want to run a, I'm a maxi farmer. I want to run a huge farm and a, and a huge mob and feed heaps of people and restore heaps of landscape. You know, and I'm not embarrassed to say it. So we're scaling, you know, instead of my first lot of pigs I bought was I had three pigs in the front paddock and we fed them up and ate them. You know, and now we're on track this year to do 350 pigs. We're basically turning off a pig a day. Um, so, 
you know, where where the the systems on the farm are probably a step behind where our appetite is. We're, we're constantly trying to catch up. I love it, man! Wow, so much that I want to dive into there. But first, yeah, the Nguni cattle, um, definitely something I've been learning more about from you, Max, Brian. And it seems really cool. And, and Max mentioned he kind of thinks of it similarly to how the bison are here in North America. It's that kind of just breed that hasn't been tampered with as much over you know, so many generations to become more docile and more you know, for the s- centralized industrial feedlot system that's easy to scale. So I think that approach is, is spot on, right? Like we need to think about it from the quality perspective, from the resilience, not just the, the end product, because then it'll show up, you know, how it needs to on, on your plate. So I guess give me a little more insight on, on the Nguni. You know, I have, I have a bit, they, they kind of come from Africa, right? And they're, the tribes really didn't mess with the, the breeding selection too much over generations. So inherently, they're more resilient because because they're just a more, I guess, ancestral breed of cattle. Is, is that right? Yeah, like those, the, the Zulu people in South Africa are the, the you know the traditional stewards of the Nguni cattle, and they did very little to mess. Like they didn't breed them in a sophisticated manner. The animals just bred. The only thing that they did uh, to my, I'm sure they did a lot of little things, but the main thing that they did that has influenced the breed, which is really interesting is all the biggest bulls, they castrated them and turned them into oxen, you know, turned them into steers to pull their wagon. Uh, and what that's done is it's kept all the smallest bulls as the bulls that would be breeding the cows. So it's kept the breed small. So, you know, one real big contrast between an animal like an Nguni versus a traditional British breed, which is, you know, an Angus or a Hereford or whatever it might be, is... They're two-thirds of the size. They're anywhere from half to two-thirds of the size. So I've got Nguni cows, mature cows in the paddock that are weighing between 400 and 450 kilograms. Your American listeners are going to have to get on Google and um, justify using an imperial measuring system. Like a 1,000 pounds. And, and try and figure that out. You know, what a joke. Uh, but, you know, to, to give you an insight, like a, a mature Hereford or Angus cow will be 650 to 700 kilos. So you're looking at a cow that's two-thirds the size. So they're a lot smaller. And why is that important? Well, to me, they've got a lower impact on the environment. So, you know, when a, when a paddock floods, they don't pug it, pug it up as hard. They mature earlier. You know, they grow into their potential faster and they become mature and fertile and ready to breed earlier. So it speeds up our breeding cycle and our scaling. Um, and and I can actually run more of them because their consumption's lower for maintenance. So I can run you know, three Nguni cows to two Angus cows, uh, just based on, you know, weight. So I can have more animals on the same block of land. Uh, and, you know, they've got so many different things to offer. They're, they're, they're naturally parasite resistant. And this isn't a big drama for us because the way we manage our cattle always keeps us ahead of parasite burden anyway. But And, and we don't have tick pressure. But if you're in a coastal area in Australia with big tick burdens, they don't bother the Nguni at all. They excrete natural oils through their skin and their hair that, you know, sterilizes these ticks and knocks them off, which is just the most incredible thing to have this, uh, you know, natural defense. It's, it, it's chemical warfare. The Nguni are equipped with chemicals to go to war with these external parasites, which is so fun. Um, you know, there are lots of different colors. 
uh, easy carving and, you know, everything I've said about I don't care about the meat quality, well, I actually do because we eat the thing, you know, it, it, but I, I, I do stand by what I said about it being a uh, byproduct that we have eaten, you know, quite a bit of binguni and it's exceptional meat. It's very good meat. Is it, uh, well, you mentioned the calving. That was going to be something I asked about because, like, the bison, you don't even have to do anything with them. So that's, you know, a huge benefit. Probably not as huge of a deal here, but, like, in the U.S., especially in the the winter, you know, calving is such a problem for so yep. many ranchers. So that's that's what I figured. Is the meat, is it, are they just leaner in general as well because they haven't been bred for, you know, like, fat, docile? Yeah, so they. If you want to say. They've got a good yield, you know, their, their percentage of yield is actually quite respectable. They're, they're punching very well, so it makes sense on a, on a um, balance sheet in that regard. They've got a good fat cap, uh, you know, if they're finished properly. There is a little bit of marbling in them, but not, it's not extensive. You know, I've got my questions as to whether marbling is something that we should be aspiring to within our, uh, you know, selection for genetics because it, no. it looks to me, and, you know, we're trying to draw parallels between humans and um you know, ruminant herbivores, and I understand there's differences there, but every example I see of marbling is less than ideal. It's it's obesity, it's pre-diabetic or diabetic, it's uh, elderly, whatever it might be, and you look at the cross-section of a muscle out of an athlete, you know, versus some fat old person, <laughs> you got one that's marbled, one that's not. And if you take that example over into the uh, animal kingdom, all of our most nutrient-dense red meats, uh, elk, you know, venison, all these all these wild animals that haven't had marbling pushed into them. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but we, we, weren't, we didn't used to eat. It wasn't very long ago. We didn't eat marbled beef, and we were not accustomed to marbled beef. When they started American feedlots because they needed to figure out what to do with all this corn that the government was subsidizing farmers to produce, and they started feeding it to cattle and creating marbled cattle because these cattle were getting obese, they had to uh, market and try and convince people what to do with all this marbled beef. And, you know, so we, we've, we've sort of lost that food intelligence and now we're all accustomed to marbled beef, but it's not the norm and it's not what we're used to. And the ingredient have a little bit of marbling in it, but you look at it and it looks like the cross-section out of an athlete. You know, it looks like somebody who's an animal that's fit for purpose, healthy, vigorous, uh, beautiful dark color to it. So, you know, the, to me, the fat's in all the right places on the Nguni. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because it, it has been such, like, there's been such a change in our perception of, of meat quality and, and taste and flavor, like I kind of mentioned in the beginning. And, and there's always this logical perspective that, you know, the quality or the health of the animal that you're eating is going to correlate to the health it provides for you. Like, that's obviously a logical statement to, to have. But for the longest time, you know, that was kind of misconstrued. It wasn't that big of a deal. Now we've had, you know, we've had Stefan von Fleet on the podcast. He said pretty much the exact same thing you said, that pasture-raised animals look like athletes, feedlot beef look like, you know, obese, diabetic people, metabolic syndrome. So there is a difference. And then wild game has, you know, the, the most biodiverse uh, feed, the most biodiverse pastures and forage that they're consuming. So they have the most biodiverse nutrients as well. And if you have an animal that's kind of bred or lack of breeding over generations, that's kind of designed to be thriving in that sort of environment. Yeah. It, it makes perfect sense to me. I think it's, it's amazing that this is becoming like a trend and momentum and now we have data to, to back this up. And yeah. So is like, is there any environment like the Nguni are 
not like really great in? Like, do you think this could be a worldwide thing? Like, should we start raising in Goonie in the U.S. or are there specific environments that they're really um, optimized for? Obviously, Africa, Australia is, is pretty warm, hot climate. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I get sort of sledged a little bit for having Nguni in my area because we're such a good, uh, we're known for being such a good, green, consistent area. But the reality is, is it gets hot here and we're brittle. Like if you, if you study your holistic management, you talk about brittle, non-brittle, we're completely brittle for four to five months of the year. You know, the, mm. the, the, the farms, are, uh, all the grass is dried off and it's just hay standing in the paddock and, you know, that's when the Nguni really thrive. And do they do well on green grass? You know, of course they do. All ruminants do. Um, so our climate is actually very similar. You know, across Australia is actually very similar to a lot of places in um, South America, so or South Africa rather. So I think that they're perfectly suited for here. The, the stud that I buy my seed stock off, he's a bit further north. It's uh, Edwin Roos at Henham Nguni in Australia. He's just north of Canberra. And he has some calves carved down in winter where he gets minus seven degrees Celsius with a big wind chill on that. So that's seven degrees Celsius below freezing. And these cows are carving down in that and having no issues with it, you know, able to get their calf up. So I don't think that that's uh, probably the optimal spot for the Nguni. You know, you, you, you know that's, that's a very cold environment. I don't think you go to America and put them in areas that uh, get, you know, meters of snow every year. But, you know, you guys already, there's no Nguni in America from my knowledge, but you guys do definitely have fit-for-purpose animals uh, all over your country that are very similar. So you've got your piney woods. You know, if I was in America, I'd be looking at getting some piney woods going. Or you've got Mashona. Mashona cattle are very uh, becoming quite popular in America with all these sort of alternative farmers. Mashona is actually an Nguni ecotype, so they're, they're related uh, out of um, South Africa. So they're basically just uh, Nguni that have been selected for black, no horns and a, and a fleshier disposition. And I think that they're, they're sensational animals um, and, and just as good. But, you know, America's got plenty of hot sort of arid areas within it that these animals would thrive in, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking that, like the southern half of the U.S. would probably be a great fit, really, to be honest. So have you have you noticed since – or I guess – are you breeding them into your herd that was not uh, Nguni as well? So are you getting a mix? Or are you trying to like isolate the Nguni and only, I sure. guess, grow a herd that's kind of very high percentage? So how does yeah. how's, how is that working with your herd? I'm breeding up. So the, in Australia, there's less than 250 purebred Nguni cows. Uh, I purchased two purebred Nguni cows at an auction. I was lucky enough to get them. They were eight years old each with a calf at foot, so that's a pretty old cow, and I spent you know 8,000 uh, bucks plus taxes plus freight on each animal, which is just crazy, uh, especially for the age of the animal. But you know, the genetics are just so hard to come by. The bulls are cheaper because bulls are sort of dime a dozen, uh, you know, e easy to get, produce more of them. Everyone wants to keep their girls. So I've got a couple of purebreds that we're breeding pure and keeping pure progeny out of, but mainly I'm breeding up. So what I've done is I've bought a heap of Jersey cows that are retired out of dairies, you know, Jersey milking cows, and I'm breeding in Goonie because then I bought them because they're, they're cheap. Um, they're mature when I buy them, so I don't need to wait for them to grow. They've already, you know, eaten all the grass that's going to put all their bone down. And Jerseys have a tremendous amount to offer uh, cattle. Again, they're small frame, similar frame size to an Nguni in terms of, you know, height and weight. 
easy carving, great meat quality, uh, you know, more more milk production than what you'd want, uh, but good milk production. Uh, and we're breeding them over them. So then, you know, then you get your first crossing goonies and then we're retaining those heifers, getting our second crosses. So we're actually uh, probably a couple months away from joining our first lot of first crosses and then, you know, sort of be about a year and we'll have our first proper crop of second, second crosses. You do that generation, you do that four or five times, you get to F4, F5, and, you know, most people would generally uh, acknowledge the animals that you've got as purebred. So you can, you can breed up. Okay. That makes sense because I, I figured it was probably a combination, but that's interesting with the Jersey cow as well. That's something I've actually heard a lot more of recently that people are, you know, the meat is kind of re- very underrated. Obviously, it's a good source of, of A2 milk. So are you going to be raising them just for meat then? Kind of you're just starting them off or are you doing milk also? I'm not doing milk. You know, what we're doing is we're, we're buying, you know, let's say we buy uh, 40 Jersey cows out of the dairy and we run them with our bull and then we come in and preg test and we might breed uh, 80% of them. Uh, so, you know, there's eight left over that are empty mm. and then we finish those eight on pasture, we get them fat and then we put them through the butchery. We sell them as dairy beef. You know, it's, it's marketed dairy beef because they have come out of a dairy environment and they've been eating grain while they've been in there so you know it's like a less intensive feedlot system so we we do label the beef so our consumers that want 100% grass-fed and finish only no you know dairy's not for them Uh, but the meat quality is exceptional you know we 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 really love it and then all the other ones that are pregnant um we 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 keep all the calves all this all the bull calves get marked as steers and we grow them out for meat and then we retain all the heifers to breed over an inguni bull again that makes sense that's cool that's an innovative way i think to go about doing this so getting back to maybe like scaling your operation scaling regenerative management um kind of at the high level this is something i've talked about a lot in my book on this podcast that you know it's always yeah how do we scale regenerative farming um, you know, there's all these hurdles. There's a lot, especially so much public land in, in the U.S. And it's really a management issue. And and guys I know are starting to partner with these public authorities to, to graze public lands in a rotational manner more so. How do you see this happening in, in Australia? What what are the biggest hurdles? And then how do you see yourself, you know, executing on, on scaling this is, you know, a lot of what you're doing, lease land, or, you know, working with programs to buy more land, I guess the whole kind of picture, if you could paint that for us. Yeah, sure. Well, look, you know, for us specifically, we're, we're farming on three different properties at the moment and they're all leased. We don't currently own any farmland. Uh, my wife and I have just purchased 150 acres with a house on it and we, we settle on that. We get our keys to our house in two weeks. Uh, we'll be moving out of town with the kids and, and living on that farm. But that'll be our first, you know, internally owned land that we'll be farming. Everything else is leased. Uh, and, and for me, I'm just pushing all of my all my cash flow, you know, all, all of my revenue and all of my effort towards trying to build up some numbers because I've, you know, I've proven to myself again and again over four years that if I grow it, I can sell it. Uh, but the reality is with things like cattle, it takes quite a bit of time to breed them and grow them out ready for processing. It's really a two-year program uh, plus, you know, two years plus. So, we, you know, I, I, every time I get a spare few dollars, I go and buy some more cows and find some more land to put them on and, you know, try to grow the herd that way. So we, we do intensive farming as well, which is poultry and pigs. You can 
you know, even though they're on pasture and they're following pasture uh, raised model, you know, systems, they do get grain and and because, you know, those animals grow so fast and you are importing feed, you can scale those enterprises bigger. So I find that those enterprises are a little bit easier to turn up the dial on. You know, if I wanted to go from 350 pigs this year to 700 pigs th- next year, all I'd have to do is order more piglets and order more grain. Uh, you know, we, we could turn those pigs off. Um, but, you know, that would be relatively simple. So it's the... It's the extensive grazing of cattle and sheep that's requiring more time, more capital, more land. You know, there's a bit, bit more of a long play for that. You know, in, in regenerative agriculture in general and scaling it, you know, most there's a lot of big uh, farms out there that are running their properties exceptionally well. Like when I started, the reason I started growing my own food was for myself because I couldn't find anyone that didn't drench cattle. I went to the local farmer's market and spoke to all the beef producers there and they're all drenching and they're all worming and doing all these different things that I didn't want. So I thought I had to do it myself. But when you get involved in the industry, and I've met you know hundreds of Aussie farmers the last few years, there's heaps out there that are doing a great job running their farm at scale, You know, properties that are thousands of acres, hundreds of cattle, and they're doing holistic plant grazing and their animals are unmedicated, but they're not customer facing. I think the real burden stopping uh, this sort of production uh, being scaled is the customer-facing end of it. So it's it's processing, it's distribution, and it's sales. You know, there is a lot of top-notch produce that's being raised in an exceptional way, just landing on the commodity shelves at our supermarkets, and the consumers are clueless as to what they're buying because the industry doesn't have. So you know, people want to get involved in regen ag and bring something to the table and, and, you know, help the cause, but they're not farmers or they don't know how to farm or they don't even want to farm. It's like, that's great. We've probably got all the farmers. We need we need uh, logistics. We need distribution and processing. You know, they're the bottlenecks. Is there a lot of regulatory hurdles here as well? Because that's one of the biggest issues in the U.S. But I totally agree with, the you know, the direct-to-consumer marketing distribution front probably being the biggest need. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, re- regulatory stuff here. I think we're better and worse than the states. Like you guys seem to have more exemptions for really small scale stuff. You know, so you look at guys like Salatin who can, I think they can do 10,000 birds a year with absolutely no oversight. And then that 10,000 of first bird, the regulatory capture to get into that's enormous. You know, we we don't have any exemptions for scale. So if you're involved, if you're doing if you're doing 10 birds, you have to tick all the same boxes as everyone else. Uh, but there are, you know, abattoirs here and there that you can go and give them your 10 birds to and they'll process them and give them back and they're all ticked. And it's really not its not as challenging as people think. You know, I, I hear people complain about the red tape all the time, but I think it's because they're not willing to, you know, open up the laptop and do a bit of study and, and, and call around and get in the car and drive to where they need to go. You know, everyone wants it to drop in their lap. And uh, yeah, I, I think just by proxy of the, of the movement, it, 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 it attracts a lot of well-meaning people who are, you know, wanting to do all the right things for all the right reasons, but they just maybe don't have the, the grit or the, uh, you know, uh, effort needed to really, you know, push through those initial barriers. No, no businesses are easy, Tristan, and I, you know, you don't need to hear this, but maybe someone does. Like people complain that farming's hard and there's all these barriers in front of them. And sure, it's challenging. You know, it, it's it's dangerous at times. You've it, it's it's capital hungry. You're reliant on the weather. You know, but so is heaps of stuff. 
all, I've involved in lots of different industries. I've got, I've got a restaurant, I've got a bicycle shop, you know, used to run an e-commerce business. They're all challenging. They've all got, uh, they've all got regulatory capture. You know, they've all got cash flow, flow issues. They've all got compliance issues. They've all got staffing issues. Agriculture is not really unique in that regard. So the thing I really like about agriculture is you can brand the product as your own and own your own product instead of, you know, selling something on behalf of someone else. I think there's just so much potential there. Yeah, that's a great perspective to have and probably something that needs to be heard from a lot of people is that, yeah, there's there's always hurdles, especially um, in something that, you know, is, is quite um, disruptive in terms of the style that you're doing it in. But yeah, there's always ways to get to the finish line and get where you want to go. But like you just said, it's really cool to be, and, and this is something I've have found. It's like, Oh, I, I wanted to, you know, start businesses, obviously make money, but if you're passionate about something and then simultaneously improving the quality of other people's lives, which is exactly what you're doing with, uh, you know, your farm is, you know, really going to push you to overcome whatever is thrown your way, really. And uh, that's what it's all about. And, you know, we're just getting started here. So that's what's most exciting. Um, I wanted to ask quickly about the multi-species grazing kind of, are you implementing that in, in some specific way? This is kind of a controversial topic in the regenerative ag space, I would say, at least from my understanding and everyone I've talked to. Some are very pro multi-species grazing, some are not. Some say only do ruminants. And then obviously, as you mentioned, you know, enter, from an enterprise perspective, uh, using monogastrics is, is a good way to you know, scale something quickly. Um, it, and you can still have a way higher quality product than anything at the grocery store. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, well, look, we, we do beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and eggs, so and you know a bit of honey as well. So we've definitely... Uh, go on the multi-species uh, way. I wouldn't recommend people do what I do. Like, I don't think that um, it's necessary, and I don't think that it's uh, it's it, it's it's not easy. You know, I think a lot of I, I did it all because I wanted to. I've never had any farming experience, so I wanted to farm cattle and pigs and eggs and sheep, and you know, see what I enjoyed the most and see what suited my systems. And you know, the longer I'm doing it, the more I'm figuring out. You know, I don't have any plans to cull any of my enterprises, but there's definitely some that I'm considering. You know, maybe they're not the ones to scale, maybe we've got to go chase over here. And, and I've been able to run profit and losses and balance sheets for years on each enterprise and figure out, you know, what works for us, what our market wants. I never really wanted to do sheep, but I thought I'd give sheep a go, and through doing sheep. I figured out that they're far more profitable than cattle. You know, I wouldn't have necessarily have thought that coming into it. So, you know, there's, there's these great little um, things you can pick up. But I think if you're if you're a customer facing farm and you're selling direct to market, my uh, inclination is that it'd be really powerful to have one ruminant, whether that's you know cattle or sheep or buffalo or whatever you want to have, uh, have one intensively farmed enterprise. 
you know, and that doesn't have to be chickens or pigs. You could find something else intensive. You know, you could you could have um, trout ponds on your farm or you know, farm fish or whatever it might be. You could you could do soldier fly larva and sell them dehydrated as chicken for whatever it is. And then I think to, that each of those products should probably each of those enterprises should have a hero product. So you know, let's say you, you chose um, lamb and pork as your extensive and intensive complementary enterprises. Uh, which we actually need to do because the cost of land and is is you know so high that we couldn't ever pay the bills just by doing extensive you know we, we would need these complementary enterprises. If you're doing uh, lamb and pork, you know with your lamb you could have a hero product of lamb tallow, and you could use that sort of waste stream of that extra fat. You could render it down and then have a value add, high margin, shelf stable, easy to ship hero product. And then with your pigs, you could do the same thing. You could do lard or you could do dehydrated pet treats with your your nose, your tongue, your ears, your tail. Um, you could do a, a, some charcuterie, some salami or some, you know, other, other shelf-stable goods. So, you know, that's what I would recommend people to do. Don't do what I do. There's a lot going on and, you know, I'm probably sucker for punishment. But I also think of for people that are new and wanting to get into agriculture and, you know, start their little family farm you know, quit their nine to five. I was in a bit of a different spot. You know, I've been self-employed uh, since I left school. I've run multiple businesses. You know, I've got quite a big team of uh, employees around me. So I feel like I, I was able to sort of take the brunt of the um, onslaught of attention and effort that those onto enterprises needed because of my previous you know, experience and resources. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And you sprinkled in things in there that is important, like the value-added products, utilizing the whole animal. Um, these are often, you know, things that seem obvious, but people don't really focus on. And, and most people, yeah, they're just, you know, selling meat by actually most ranchers in the U.S. are probably just selling bulk meat locally or wholesaling it. So they're not taking advantage of the whole animal and they're not obviously going, most of them are not going direct to consumer and then most are not thinking of these value-added products, which is something I've realized is kind of the key to, yeah, having the cash flow and the ability to stay afloat. So that's great advice. And it's it's cool to think about coupling the enterprises in a way that makes sense for your environment as, as well. Um, and yeah, I think the multi-species grazing overall, if you can figure that out, I think it's going to vary depending on the situation. But it's uh, always helpful to have a business background, I would say. And something that's nice as well for you is how far are you from or where are you selling most of your, your meat? Is it just locally or is there a lot of customers well, in a lot of it's lo- as well? A lot of it's local in my hometown, Aubrey, here. But we've recently, like we've been shipping into Melbourne for about a year, which is uh, really growing nicely. And we've recently just opened up domestic freight. So we're shipping to Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane, and then a lot of oh, you know, wow. surrounding suburbs. So we, we do pretty we, we we're very well covered in metro areas, but you know regional gets more and more uh, complicated with refrigerated supply. Uh, but, you know we're really trying to ship to anyone who wants it. I don't want any barriers. You know if if you want it, I'll sell it to you and I'll I'll get it to you if I can. I think that's the way to do it. And something that's also unique that that you do and that you kind of preach a bit is is accept Bitcoin for payment. And I know Slim was down here, did the Beef Initiative in Australia, and we've talked to folks like Jason Rick, who's accepting a Bitcoin for beef. I've sold some bison for Bitcoin. There's not a ton of people, but it seems to be growing. I'm curious, how did you get into Bitcoin? Was this before or after the you know uh, farm started? 
And how has the reception been from the people when you've relatively, advocated for accepting this? Yeah, I'm a relatively new Bitcoiner. Like I, I, during lockdowns in COVID, a mate and my, you know, in our town, like Australia was very hard on the whole lockdowns thing and you couldn't do much. And even if you wanted to go do stuff, everything was closed. So a friend of mine, uh, we, just, we got onto one of the uh, crypto exchanges and just started day trading, trying to catch pumps with all these um, altcoins, you know, all these crappy uh, cryptos. And I didn't have much of an awareness. And I was we were just day trading and, uh, and trying to make some cash and laughing at each other. And he ended up doing really well and I ended up doing really poorly. Um, but through doing that, I realized that all the different cryptos out there were not equal. And there was a few that stood out to me of actually having a bit of technology behind them versus other ones that were literally just like, caricatures of animals and just big pump and dump Ponzi schemes. And then I, you know, I got all my cash out. The world started opening back up and I started, you know, doing what I did again. And then I cut up a body of beef for a guy because we do some custom processing here. So someone can consign a body of beef to us through the abattoir and we'll cut and package it for them. And I was packing his boxes. He, he had requirements, you know, the, the beef was to be split into sixteenths. And he sent me the packing sheet of who each box was going to and I was labeling it all and it had payment methods. Fiat, 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 Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And I called him and I said, are you selling some of this beef for Bitcoin? And he said, absolutely. And he he orange-pilled me. He got into me and uh, got me on the page. And I thought, well, I'm going to start accepting Bitcoin for my uh, meat. So I didn't even have my website set up at that time. So I got my website built. One of the first things we did was get the uh, software built in so you can buy, you know, products. You can buy tickets to our events. You can buy lard and, you know, beef and pork and whatever you want. And when you get to the checkout page, you can select Bitcoin you can pay with um it's all on chain at the moment and it's been going really well you know i i haven't sold any meat to people who are not bitcoiners and thought i'm going to try this bitcoin thing but i have had a lot of bitcoiners who want to buy meat um and probably would never have bought off me because of distance and all this sort of stuff now come on and support me it's like there's two guys in perth that place orders with me semi-regularly, like Perth's like, I don't know what it is, it's like 4,000, 5,000 kilometres away. You know, it's on the very opposite side of Australia. It's like New York to LA, you know. It's, and and it makes no sense to buy off me, but they want to buy off, uh, you know, another Bitcoiner. They appreciate that they can actually uh, spend their Bitcoin and, and, you know, they want to support that emerging industry. And it's lots of fun. I really enjoy it. And, you know, there's quite a lot of people that buy off me using pseudonyms. So I'm sending to locker addresses and I don't know who's buying it and that's fine you know the funds are in my account now it goes to me off you go yeah once you tap into that bitcoin or network I think people are people be surprised how supportive they are because there's there's really not a lot of options and I don't know how it is here in Australia but it's definitely still pretty sparse and even in the US I know Austin is kind of like a hub there's a lot of beef producers there that take bitcoin but yeah I think it's an easy way to set yourself apart and Hey, I mean, all our perspectives are are pretty aligned, so I think it's just an easy way to better market your business. Yeah, it's fun. You know, I've I've made a heap of really good mates by doing it. Uh, picked up some customers I probably wouldn't have picked up, and you know, I am I'm not an investor, and I'm not a speculator. I'm a I'm a businessman, so it suits me just fine earning my sats. So how has your since you've been more involved with with Bitcoin and connecting with Bitcoiners has, has your perspective on other things changed because you know if you're already into the regenerative farming and understand the importance of you know proof of work quality low time preference um, pretty much 
just personal responsibility, obviously, is a big advocate uh, or big, I guess, kind of thing that you preach. How else has, has getting connected with these folks and this mindset kind of shifted your perspective? Uh, I don't think it's shifted too much. I, I think that I've just probably found, you know, a good extension of my tribe, found a lot of people that I have a lot in common with. You know, I was really easy to orange peel because I knew that the current fiscal system was rubbish. Um, you know, got all this fake money just getting printed and, every, you know, since everything's been debased, like that was not new knowledge to me. I think a lot of people, you know, they sort of do that whole journey at once, but I was already sort of um, on, on top of a lot of that. And I just hadn't realised that, uh, you know, un- until I spoke to this guy and he sort of pilled me, like I said, I didn't realise the proof of work aspect of Bitcoin and, and you know, the, the, the value needed to um, generate it to produce one. So it's just been, yeah, it's been cool having that community. And the, it's a good, it's a good um, broad range of people. You know, there's a lot of skill sets that you can tap into. There's a lot of people, a lot of experience you can tap into. And it's such a generous group. Everyone's happy to... Um, you know, share knowledge and stuff. So hoping to get to my first bush bash soon. I was meant to go to one of the recent bush bashes here, but I got really crook and couldn't go. So I I've, I've, uh, haven't been to one yet, so I'm hanging out for that. Yeah, I highly recommend. The meetups are always a ton of fun, but it makes it makes sense. Like you see them, you know, before we even talked about Bitcoin on, on, on the podcast, it's kind of just see you're very aligned and, and those types of people are, are the best to bring into the community because it's like you're already building um, solutions that are very aligned, very ad- adjacent to Bitcoin. So I, I think that's what it's all about, really. Has other have other ranchers in your area or sorry farmers i know you guys don't use that term uh really here uh ask you about accepting bitcoin uh or just in general like your management style the inguni has this kind of ruffled feathers at all or are people pretty open to it and you think are going to shift kind of their practice their management styles to be similar it's really split like i get i get laughed at and teased at a lot on um, social media like, is a really big farming community on Twitter. That's very conventional. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big joke for that crowd because everything I do sort of, you know, taking old Jersey culls out of a dairy and then breeding them with some African animal that's got a horn and a hump and then trying to sell it to consumers through my own butchery as prime beef. Like it just sounds like an absolute joke. You know, it's like, what's the punchline? These guys just don't get it. You know, but I think that uh, the way they do things is pretty sad. They, they breed a black cow that the market says it wants and every other cow's worthless, even though black means it's, <laughs> it's racism, it's bigotry towards animals. And they do all this work all year and at the end of the year they hold out their hat and they get what they're given because they're price takers and not price makers, you know. And that's I'm not trying to um, run down what they do. I think that the whole way they do things is really sad on, on the way the industry's got it all shaped up. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, there are a lot of boys that it's, it's like tr- traditional sort of conventional farmers that do find it really interesting and they normally slide into the DMs or they normally call me. It's not normally uh, public-facing sort of conversations. Uh, and, you know, there, there's one guy just north of here that's uh, borrowed one of my Nguni bulls. You know, he's a, he's a cropper. He's, a, he's got... A merino sheep operation and he crops and he borrowed an Inguni bull and when he went and bought 20 Jersey cows uh, and he came down here and delivered the bull back to me a month ago and he, he said, oh, do you want to go for lunch? I said, yeah, let's go for lunch. And he said, tell me about Bitcoin. And we sat down there and we had our first um, orange pilling, you know. So there are some guys that are interested in, you know, I think that the longer 
it's interesting, Tristan, when I started because all the homesteaders three, four years ago loved what I was doing and wanted to support it, wanted to buy a little bit of beef mints and help me out. And and all the you know the bigger guys probably thought, you know, here's another young young naive kid who thinks he's got all the world's um, issues sorted out. And I definitely. Um, you know, was naive because how can you not be naive when you walk into a whole new industry that's as uh, vast and as um, sophisticated as agriculture? Uh, and now I'm, I'm sort of like I'm getting homesteading types approaching me saying, oh, how do I do this on a – do your systems work on a smaller scale? I'm like, well, you know, I'm still regarded as small scale to the big boys, but now the, now the little homesteaders sort of think I'm too big for them and I'm in this sort of funny, uh, you know – funny middle ground, I, I guess, where it's, it's a sort of an odd-sized odd enterprise. But, yeah, like lots of, I guess, you know, to answer the question, there, there is a lot of interest, um, and, but you just got to pick your mark. You know, some people are never going to change, and that's okay. They can do what they do. I'm not here to... Um, I'm not here to lecture people who don't want to change their system. Yeah, I think leading by example like you're doing is just the best way to go about it. Everyone's going to, you know, there's going to be critics that will eventually come around, some that will never come around because they're just too stubborn, they're too ingrained, entrenched in what they do. Um, and then, yeah, there's going to be folks who are open-minded. So that's kind of what I've seen. And it's interesting. I, I still think that the consumers really are, are driving a lot of the change, probably even more so than the producers. And if you're saying that in your region, the consumers are really open, asking, demanding for high quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, then that's half the battle right there. So that's fantastic. And yeah, hopefully we can continue this kind of momentum uh, across the systems in the US and, and Australia. It's uh it's exciting, and I think it's just, yeah, the more folks that pop up and, and share their story, which you've done on social media, the more people are, are going to find out that, that message. And that's how we keep building and keeping, you know, everybody aware of what actually works. Because, you know, one of the fundamental pr principles of, of Bitcoin, I think, is just the truth and the pr proof of work. It'll, it'll resonate, right? Like, if it works you will be around thriving in, in another five years. And, and if you don't, then it, or if it doesn't work, then you won't be. So that, that's really all that matters at the end of the day. And people will notice eventually. Yeah, definitely. You know, stay in your lane, practice what you preach. And, and like you said, be that example. And, you know, I've taken plenty of L's, you know, plenty of things I've tried to do haven't worked out. And that's okay. You know, there's, <laughs> there's unfortunately, there's not a rule book to read from. So we just got to keep, um, trying to like pioneer these different things and, 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 you know, innovate some new strategies in this marketplace and crack on with it. Yeah. I guess on that note, maybe last question you're wrapping up. What, what are some few, I guess, things that didn't work out that you probably really felt strongly that they were going to, and yeah, maybe some best practices for folks who are trying to get into this space. You already gave a lot of tips, but I'm curious since you just mentioned that some things that maybe didn't work out that you for sure thought would have. Yeah, um, look, there's nothing, there's no catastrophic failures, but, you know, some, some things that I wouldn't advise people to do, and this isn't rocket science stuff, but when I started, I didn't have any water infrastructure built in on the farm, so I was hauling water, and I was filling up IBCs on the back of utes and, and driving them around, just an absolute nightmare, never haul water, plumb it in if you can, and, and if you can't plumb it in, ask yourself why you can't plumb it in, it's just, it's, it'll just kill you, hauling water, it's a horrible thing to do. Um, you know, we've, we've had a heap of... Um, 
heap of like little failures, but you know, I, I don't know what the lessons out of them are. Like, you know, 2019 when I bought my first flock of 400 hens, there was an enormous bushfire uh, not far from us, and the air was uh, so thick with smoke you couldn't see 10 meters, 15 meters away. You, you, there was no visual. Um, and it was enormously hot, and I just, uh, it was like 45 degrees and windy, and I just came out. Uh, I was out the farm one day about 10 o'clock, and my chooks were doing okay, and I had a sprinkler on for them trying to look after them. And then I came out uh, four hours later, and, you know, half my chickens were in a big pile dead. Uh, you know, could I have done things better? I'm like, I'm, I'm sure I could have saved them if I would have known they were that close to it. But at the same time, you know, enormous bushfire and very hot day, and, you know, there's, there's always little sort of, you know, I've built, I've built uh, portable structures for animals that have fallen apart. I've uh, built fences on it on farms that haven't kept animals in. I've I've finished animals for the butchery that were too skinny and too fat. You know, like everything that can go wrong, I've done it. Um, but you know, a few things like if you want another couple of pearls of pearls of wisdom potentially for people looking to start, don't buy animals online. Like, don't go onto your uh, Craigslist. <laughs> Gumtree, Facebook, whatever it is, and type in pigs and then go buy the cheapest piglets that you find on those things. Like they are going to be um, full of worms. They're going to be sick. They're going to have pneumonia. They're going to have patches of hair falling out of them. You know, I've done that and it was shit. Like those, the cheapest pigs I've ever bought ended up being the most costly pigs I've ever owned because they killed other pigs with the diseases they brought on the farm. So, you know, get online. Try find a reputable breeder who's got some sort of shared values. You know, support them, build that community. Build. You buy pigs off a pig farmer, and all of a sudden you've got a phone line to to a pig professional for when you need help. You know, so you know that would be plumb your water in and buy good animals. There you go. That's smart. Cause it is tempting, right? My sister's kind of homesteading or, or just starting, and you know she's definitely on the Facebook train. And I feel like, yeah, it's always, yeah, it it might be cheap, but it's probably going to be more effort um, than than you realize in the long run. So that aligns really well, right? Don't trust, verify, you know, right. and um, put in that work to uh, understand that it's probably worth it to pay for something of higher quality in the long term, that low time preference. So hell yeah, Jake. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Where can folks find you and your farm? I don't know how many Aussie listeners we have. We probably have a sprinkle few, um, but yeah, where can folks find you? Yeah. My website is walkiefarm.com.au. I'm on Twitter at Jake Walkie, W-O-L-K-I. On Facebook, Instagram, you know, all the normal spots. We've got a YouTube channel, but, you know, most of the media comes up through Twitter. Um, and if people want to purchase, it's via the website. Awesome. Well, I love it, man. Appreciate everything that you're doing. It's cool to see this in another continent and the same kind of mindset is uh, proliferating here. So hopefully one day I can come and check it out in person. But appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for everyone for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Tristan.